I like the word translator to help translate between where the people I meet are at and the Theravada tradition, the Pali tradition that's older than Theravada and help that interaction all for the sake of compassionately addressing our our dukkha, our suffering, which is immense. It's huge. Santikaro moved to Thailand with the Peace Corps in 1980 and ordained as a Theravadan monk in 1985. He trained at Suan Mok with Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, a leading Thai teacher, scholar, and reformer of Theravadan Buddhism. He became Ajahn Buddhadasa's primary English translator and led meditation retreats at Suan Mok for many years before returning to the United States in 2001. In 2004, he retired from formal monastic life, but continues to teach in the Buddhist tradition with an emphasis on the early Pali sources. He, along with his wife, Jo Marie, co-founded Kevala Retreat, a 70-acre refuge in southwest Wisconsin dedicated to Buddhist practice, study, and social responsibility. Santikaro's teaching also gives special attention to the ethical and spiritual impact of consumerism, militarism, and the conflict-ridden state of American society. His translation of Ajahn Buddhadasa's teaching on dependent co-arising under the Bodhi tree was published in 2017. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. You moved to Thailand uh, in 1980 as a member of the Peace Corps. And I'm assuming it didn't take you too long to get involved with the Buddhist community. But within five years, you you took precepts to become a monk. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why that happened, what what brought you to that stage. It's, it's not a path that a lot of people take. Um, why? Why take on that path? Well, one, it was easy and made sense in con- context. I landed in a rural school on the Mekong River and part of the life where I lived there and then when I moved to another school in north central Thailand, going to the temple and funerals, 
merit-making, feeding monks was part of life. Plus, my first school was in the same province as Ajahn Chah, and through friends, I came across some books of his, and then later books of Ajahn Buddhadasa. Plus, one reason or motivation for going to Thailand was an interest in Buddhism that started in college. So you heard about Buddhism, studied a little bit of it, and then just followed followed your way over there? or Among the options Peace Corps gave me, I preferred to go to a non-Christian society. Partly at the time I was dissatisfied with Christianity, for example, its support of the Vietnam War, largely main, mainline, and other stuff like that. It was rather immature, so I don't want to rehash those opinions. <laughs> but I wanted to find out, well, what about Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus? Yeah. Are, are they any less hypocritical? What did you find out? Well, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a 40, no, 35-year journey that's still going on. I go to Thailand once or twice every year. You know, the interplay of popular Buddhism, monastic Buddhism, scholarly Buddhism, meditation Buddhism, and I've always had a connection with Buddhist activists as well as other, like, Christian activists, Muslim activists, and so indigenous activists. And um, so part of all that has been, what are the various ways to be authentic about one's religion or tradition? And mine is grounded in Theravada Buddhism. But as when I went to Thailand, I considered myself a liberal Protestant Christian. And I had a lot of confusion and dissatisfaction. And I I wanted to check out, well, what about other religions? Because I was exposed to them in college, and that seemed promising. Thailand was made possible through Peace Corps, and right away, I took opportunities to learn more about Thai Buddhism, reading, visiting temples, and my first attempts at meditation. So you first started meditating in, in Thailand? Pretty much. I, I was a runner in high school, in college, and I read a book on yoga. So I tried a little meditation through yoga, but it was out of books, and I generally just fell asleep. Right. And so how did you end up meeting Ajahn Buddhadasa and following that path? 
During Peace Corps, I heard about teachers, read books, mainly in translation. Though by the end of Peace Corps, I was starting to read in Thai. And of the teachers I'd heard about, he appealed to me the most. And another piece of becoming a monk was by the time I reached Thailand in the early 80s, the custom of young men temporarily ordaining was still alive, though fading and somewhat corrupted. But that was available to me. And when a monk said, you ought to ordain, I said, sure. <laughs> I said sure to a lot of things, really rot gut, farmer, rice whiskey, <laughs> eating bugs. Did you know um, if you have a wok with real hot oil and throw red fire ants in there, they make very good croutons. A lot like bacon bits. <laughs> so that was my attitude to Peace Corps. Try stuff. So some of it was superficial, but I had begun to meditate with more and more regularity. Some books translated by from Ajahn Chah and visits to monasteries. So I wanted to go explore that more before I came home and went to divinity school, which is what I thought I'd be doing. And you ended up staying quite a long time. 20 years total. 14 years as a monk. Wow. In, in Thailand and another four or five years here in the States. Right. And I'm very grateful for Thai people, Thai Buddhists, who have been so gracious and supportive of a young American punk who could be arrogant and awkward, but was sincere. That was one of my saving graces. And I received so much uh, generosity and support, and I still do. And I'm still hoping to pay that back by serving Buddha Dhamma. Now, you, in your teaching, you use a lot of the early teachings, the Pali teachings. And so I'm wondering, you know, aside from the meditation practice, what was it that really gripped you with those teachings, you know, that provided a, a direction for life or a way of life, really, for you? The starting point was Ajahn Buddhadasa referred to them constantly. He was described as a radical conservative. <laughs> Rad really? Radical, yes, by Sulaksi Varaksha, major engaged Buddhist um, pioneer. And he was an engaged Buddhist pioneer of an earlier generation than Sulak, who's now 80-something. And radical, people often forget, means to go to the roots, to be grounded in the roots. 
and for Ajahn Buddhadasa, myself, and others, the roots are the Pali teachings. Although now we're also benefiting with translations of the very similar sutta material in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And these are, are, I feel, and many scholars would agree, these are our best windows into the first century or two of Buddhist teaching and practice. So Ajahn Buddhadasa's was the inspiration for that as somebody living in the 21st century who grew up in baby boomer, Vietnam War era America, you know, our oil-based economy, our militarist uh, involvement throughout the world, which is still going on, for me, Buddhism in general and Pali suttas in particular are a way to gain and keep perspective. Because if, in my view, if we if we go along with mainstream culture, even mainstream intellectual culture, most of that's not spiritually grounded. So I find the suttas, along with things like Dante, which I'm still a student of, but primarily the early Pali teachings, they they give us glimpses into how does a Buddha see the world? How does a Buddha respond rather than How does a consumer respond? How does a materialist, Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me, a secularist? I'm I'm okay with secular Buddhism, though I don't describe that myself that way. But we can't just assume when we read popular Buddhist books that we're reading or understanding what the Buddha understood. And I can't claim that I do either, but to keep going back to Pali suttas and helping others to do that is my way of trying to keep connecting with those roots. I don't want to be involved in a rootless American Buddhism because it's basically consumer Buddhism or Google Buddhism or whatever. So when that that other teacher called Ajahn Buddhadasa a radical conservative, that actually wasn't meant as an insult. It was a compliment. Yes. And rather than getting stuck in these dichotomies to see them as a complex interplay, which is dependent co-arising. Right. So how do we get out of these very dichotomous ways of thinking, which are not Buddhist? Right. Or it's at best, you know, good, bad, the Buddha didn't talk that much in those terms. 
popular Buddhism made, just as popular religions of other kinds. But the Buddha was far more subtle. And how can we start to have glimpses of that and start to hang out in that thought world? Plus, it's full of gems to guide our practice, to fine-tune attitudes, perspectives. Noble Eightfold Path begins with wise, skillful view. Where does that come from? To me, the Pali Suttas are one source. Do you have a moment that comes to mind where, as a young person or even as a new monk, and you are discovering these, the suttas, where you read something and you just went, oh, wow, that, that's what I've been looking for? Probably the first moment like that was pre-suttas. Uh, during the latter stage of Peace Corps, I was considered a good, successful volunteer after I um, re-upped an extra year and a half. Yet I also came to realize here was this young American who was a bit full of himself, college educated, helping people, and I don't want to diminish the value of helping people, but it can be a bit arrogant. And I was recognizing that side of it and kind of having some ability to get people do, to do my projects. Partly, I could get funding the way a Thai villager couldn't because I had white American privilege even over in Thailand. So I was getting things done, but I wasn't always listening very well. I was too much trying to get my stuff through. And I, I was also reading stuff from Ajahn Buddhadasa, and he talked a lot about selfishness. And I started to cop to, oh, some of what I'm doing is kind of selfish, not in a real gross way, but there's a lot of ego in this. And when that was what really started to um, take my earlier interest in Buddhism, religion, spirituality, and meditation and start to focus it, there's some self-centeredness in here and it's not pretty. I want to do something about it. And here is this teacher speaking in clear, direct language that spoke to me and I wanted to pursue that. Hmm. And so you came back to the United States in, uh, 2001 and you've been teaching here uh, now you know moving close to 20 years 
Is there a particular quality or characteristic to how you teach and how you guide students uh, who come to study with you uh, about the path, uh, you know, the liberation path or, uh, or the lifestyle? Um, I started teaching here on yearly visits starting in 1989. Oh, wow. But that would be a month, two months each year. Right. But it took me a while being back full time to really start to kind of find my ground again as an American living in America. And what are the anxieties of the middle class people I was largely interacting with and how much were they getting Buddhist teachings, even so-called basics like Four Noble Truths, the role of sila or ethics, let alone the more subtle things like emptiness and dependent core rising. So that's been, that's taken 10 years or more. And I'm still trying to understand <laughs> this bizarre country I grew up in. And Thailand's kind of bizarre too. So I don't think America's unique in bizarreness, but it's the one I live in now and feel some responsibility for. So when I feel when I'm effective, and unfortunately I'm not always, I can get pig-headed or dogmatic, but when I'm effective, I feel one, I'm opening myself and listening to where people are at, whether it's an individual or a group, I'm often working with smaller groups, which I quite like. Even a retreat with six people that we recently hosted at Kevala Retreat, which was great because it's intimate, can really work with where people are. It can be very spontaneous. But groups like a study group in Chicago that meets six times a year, knowing people, tracking them, and where are they with the concepts when they see words like noble truths? What are they understanding? So I feel when I'm behaving as a teacher, grounded, mindful, sensitive, compassionate, I'm really listening carefully to where people are at. I'm not just talking. I love to talk, but I got to listen and take people in emotionally, know a bit about where they are in life, um, a spouse with cancer, a parent who's undergoing dementia, losing a job or having a really horrible job, but it's the only one they can find and so on. So things as a young monk, I was much more kind of theoretical, dogmatic. And that doesn't help people practice with 
their actual lives. So tuning in as best I can and then being kind of a media or medium, but try to be a bridge, which is, I like the word translator, to help translate between where the people I meet are at and the Theravada tradition, the Pali tradition that's older than Theravada and help that interaction all for the sake of compassionately addressing our our dukkha, our suffering, which is immense. It's huge. One of the things I've really appreciated about uh, your writing and the, the talks you've given online is how much you've held on to the idea of Buddhism as a spiritual tradition and, and a spiritual sort of solution to the suffering. And there's this great quote that I have of you that says, as Buddhism is adapting to the West, rather than incorporating a healthy or effective spiritual tradition, it is adapting to secularism. This is unique in Buddhist history. It is being molded and changed not by the Western monotheisms, but by pop psychology and consumerist capitalism. Perhaps the only thing Western Buddhism is inheriting from monotheism is a tendency towards dogmatism. And I, you know, I hear some teachers or I hear people saying, look, any, you know, any meditation is good. <laughs> you know, just getting people to start meditating is good. But I guess I might be hearing something a little different in that you're saying there's really, there's a spiritual transformation that's available and part of the path and part of why we should do this is recognizing the dukkha and also the opportunities of liberation from dukkha by engaging in the spiritual path. Yeah, and those kind of things are stated a little bit stark. One could be more nuanced. Um, personally, there's, I see a lot worthwhile in secularism, especially its best side, like secular humanism, but consumerism is also secular. Our use of psychology for brainwashing actually gets much more money than like through advertising. That gets far more money than the psychology that helps people. So secularism is a mixed bag. So is Buddhism. So how do we recover the best of Buddhism and interact with the best of Western culture or American culture? For me, Midwest, upper Midwest, Chicago, Wisconsin, Minneapolis culture. So I want to work in there. I see American Buddhism very willing at times to adapt to consumer models, consumer marketing, 
And sure, if that helps people start meditating, yes, that's good. But good is not spiritual. Good isn't what spirituality is about. It's a foundation in the famous Ovada Patimoka, not doing evil, undertaking what's wholesome, and then something that roughly means purifying mind, heart, psyche, which is basically from ego grasping and egoism. That's where the spirituality is in the third piece. So there are many things that are good, but Buddhism challenges us to more than that, deeper than that, bigger than good. Otherwise, we get caught up in arguments, what's good, who's better, and that's not, that's more suffering. Mm. And in the Midwest, I often end up teaching in uh, facilities res uh, maintained and rented by Christians, like this past weekend, one in Chicago, so crosses all over. I still get inspired by the deeper, more sensitive thinking of the cross. And when Jesus, during the Passion, or carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem, to, to carry a cross, there's no other way. To, to just try to get rid of the cross, um, we have to learn to bear it. And then, by bearing it with more and more wisdom, compassion, love, insight, then it gets lighter and lighter. But the consumer approach or the superficial happiness approach doesn't understand the necessity of going through our suffering. Whereas every legit spiritual tradition has known that, but a more materialist tradition may just want ways to get rid of or medicate or replace my dukkha with something happier. I don't think that works. Yeah, I don't think that works either. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people about uh, the situation that I find ourselves in, you know, we we very often uh, try to keep the spiritual solution sort of private and, and in the individual sphere. sphere. Um, but there's part of me that feels like the culture needs to wrestle spiritually as well. But it's almost like we don't know how to do that. It's like a battleground over which spiritually, you know, spiritual path is right, um, rather than what are the spiritual teachings that are going to help us 
Yep, yep. Spirituality is deeply personal, as feminists said about politics, but it's also our shared human heritage. And for, for me, and this is in line with Ajahn Buddhadasa, we can't heal our screwed up politics or the vast inequality, the racial violence, the sexual violence, and on and on and on without treating these also as spiritual. And that means being able to find healthy, constructive ways to talk about spirituality. Part of our healing as a society or a species, if we're going to survive climate change, is to see the spiritual component. I also feel like it begins, it all begins with the practice. It's easy to say, oh, we need a spiritual change, but if we're not actually engaging the teachings, if we're not actually trying to see the source of our dukkha by spending intentional time there, um, the society itself is not going to change. Oh, for sure. Um... I, it doesn't make sense to demand society change. It doesn't work that way anyway. But it's a dialogue between, well, kind of bodhisattva vow type stuff. The more each of us addresses our own dukkha, we reach more and more points where we see, oh, in the dukkha and others, how different is it? So the more we wake up to our own dukkha, if that's happening in a healthy way, we're, we're waking up to the dukkha of others. And the more we expand our circle of concern, we see dukkha in all its forms, climate dukkha, species being lost, the abhorrent treatment of animals in all kinds of terrible ways. How can one be sensitive to our own dilemmas while not being sensitive to those of others? So to me, it's natural progression of mature practice rather than ideology driven to also embrace or address collective dukkha. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Santicaro encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by visiting the Kevala website at kevalaretreat.org that's k-e-v-a-l-a retreat.org there you will find his retreat schedule blog posts recordings of his talks 
and a multitude of study materials. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org slash videos. My name is Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.